Everybody, welcome to another exciting episode of Not Safe for Wonks. We need more. We need more and better superlatives because I feel like we say that a lot. Like, oh, this is a special episode. Every ep- episode's a special episode, but this actually is like a super duper special episode. Uh, can our guests just introduce themselves? Because we we want it to just yeah. be completely out of the blue. Take it away. Hi, my name is Paige Kreisman. I'm a candidate for the Oregon House of Representatives in District 42. I'm a grassroots progressive running a 100% people-powered campaign with no corporate money accepted. We're fighting for an Oregon Green New Deal, transformative housing justice, uh, campaign finance reform, and to defend our public employees and unions. I'm the first trans woman to run for the Oregon legislature. I'm a disabled veteran. I was in the U.S. Army Infantry before I was forced out of the military by Trump's trans military ban. And now I'm fighting back because working class Oregonians deserve a voice in our government. And right now we're not being heard. And we're going to change that. We have had a lot of candidates come on this show and we ask, like, uh, how did you get into this election specifically? And uh, we've had people who've said, well, a Democratic Party headhunter founded me. They liked my bio. Or, um, you know, I had a few friends that we got in a room together at a party and uh, we thought that would be a good idea for me to go and take on whatever jerk Democrat is holding power, whatever jerk Republican is holding power, and I'm going to fly into the Death Star and do what I can about it. Uh, If I understand this correctly, uh, you actually got recruited by your DSA chapter. Uh, Yeah, that's that's correct. My DSA chapter, as well as some other local organizations, too, um, it really came up very quickly. Um, We're challenging an incumbent. Uh, His name's Rob Nose. And up until very recently, he's been fairly progressive. He's kind of like a pseudo progressive liberal. Um, But up until recently, he was pretty good until he took a hard right turn just this last year where he voted to cut public employee pensions. And he's a Democrat. So that's um, that's unacceptable to us. Um, I don't believe that any Democrat mm-hmm. should be voting to cut the pensions of nurses and teachers and firefighters. And um, his electorate, his voters and the people in our community were rightfully outraged about that. And our DSA chapter was rightfully outraged about that. So we reached out to some other groups in the community and we talked about it. And in just a couple of days, we got together and we found a couple potential candidates that we were going to run against him because we all agreed that he needed to be primary, that uh, we cannot allow... Democrats to to simply um, feel too comfortable that they can just do whatever they want and ignore the people in their districts and vote based on the the corporate interests that write their check. Um, so I got together and met with a couple other potential candidates and we got in a room and we just decided that uh, after about an hour of talking that I was the strongest one and we launched our race after and just three or four days after he voted to cut public employee pensions and that's what really galvanized our race and that's one of our biggest issues is that. Um, you know, Oregon, Oregon is a union state. Our community um, turns out and supports unions. When unions picket in Portland, um, community members who aren't in a union come out and picket with unions. Um, and the the Oregon legislature really should be reflecting the values of the people that live in our, our communities. And right now that's not the case. Um, so that's what this campaign is about. The thing that really blows, the thing that really blows my mind is that Oregon is nationally considered to be a very blue state. And I looked at the state you know, <laughs> legislature Oregon has a Democratic supermajority. So given the fact that it's like enough Democrats to pass whatever you want and Kate Brown's the governor, what is where is the impetus? Where's the pressure coming uh, on the supermajority Democratic state legislature uh, to like pass a bill like this that has such an impact on the people that live there? Well, I think the uh, driving factor behind a lot of what our Democrat supermajority does is corporate money. So Oregon is one of only five states that allow unlimited corporate campaign contributions. We have no campaign finance limits of any kind. Uh, And as a result, we have the most corporate spending in our elections per capita of any state in the country. And 
we see that our state legislators um, don't need don't need to vote in the interest of their constituents because they are almost never challenged. Um, my state rep was elected, um, the, the incumbent we're challenging here was elected uh, in a very uncompetitive primary and then was never challenged since since now. Um, so there's there's no incentive for uh, state reps to vote any way other than what uh, their donors tell them to. Um, and we see that play out a lot in the legislature pretty openly. We had a, um, a rent stabilization bill earlier this this session where uh, Oregon Business and Industries, the largest lobbying group in the state, openly bragged about negotiating concessions and loopholes and handouts into that bill, such as um, setting the um, uh, uh, cap on uh, uh, rent increases uh, very high, as well as um, slipping a uh, amendment into a, uh, a later bill, um, the Student Success Act, to um, uh, preempt commercial activities taxes on the local level. Um, so we have concrete examples that um, our state legislators are, and their lobbyist friends are just blatantly bragging to the public about having uh, an open door for lobbyists, but a closed door for the people. And that's what really drives the decisions in Salem. I've been, uh, speaking is from what's typically considered an ultra safe blue state Washington, or up until recently I was from there. There's and I've, I've expanded upon this on the podcast before, but there's a divide that's really pronounced between the corporate Democrats and the kind of actual progressives like Paige here and like uh, Pramila Jayapal and um, some of the other kind of representatives and state representatives that we have. And the corporate Democrats are, as the name might imply, that take corporate money, pass kind of more cons the more conservative measures and it's just it's just terrible and they're a disgrace to the party and to out when outsiders look and see like Brandon you said oh you know the Dems have a supermajority why can't they pass good things it's because the corporate Dems don't really want to pass progressive ideas well Paige what does that say about our system like I live in a deep red state and we always think well, if we can just get enough Democrats in there things will be like okay or better what does that say about money as a corrupting influence? Should that be like a higher priority when we try to organize? It should be a huge priority because corporate money's influence in our elections affect every other issue. Um, and what it says is that we don't really live in a democracy. Um, what it says is that we live in a corporate oligarchy. Um, and if people's voices want to be heard, we have to go out there and fight and we have to organize and we have to work 10 times as hard as the corporate forces have to work to have the same amount of, uh, of voice being heard in our government. And that's unacceptable. Um, let's talk a little bit about housing because you live in a state with uh, unlimited money. First of all, how, how does that impact smaller races? Like, I feel like a state house race shouldn't be that huge. I don't know. Uh, can you describe what your district is like and like what the fundraising comes from for your opponent? Like, yeah, so it's kind of that office. Yeah, it's kind of absurd, actually, how much money is spent in these races. So um, there are 35,000 registered Democrats in this race. We predict about 16,000 of them will vote um, in this election in the state house primary. Um, and our opponent has already raised $125,000. Uh, oh. And yeah, and that's actually, uh, he's going to do a lot lot more than that. There was a, a Democrat in 2018 here in Oregon in a state house race that raised and spent over a million dollars trying to flip a, a red district blue. And um, that's, um, to put that into context, those are numbers that are usually reserved for U.S. house races in most other states, not state I, house I, races. I was going to say, we've talked to progressive candidates, some of whom actually have a very good shot of being elected who have raised less than $100,000 that are, you know, they're 
they're running for the federal. So that's a lot of money to put into a state race. Yeah. And um, our U.S. House district has about 300,000 registered Democrats in it. So it's about one tenth the size. But we're we have the same amount of money spent in, in this election as in other dis- other states do in their state house or in their U.S. House races. Um, and all that money is coming from corporations. Our opponent raises less than 10 percent of his money from small individual donors. Um, and he's funded primarily by the private health care industry because he's chair of the House uh, Health Care Committee. Um, so last year, he raised about $60,000 from private healthcare companies and PAC. Uh, he's also funded by the landlord and realtor lobby, by the fossil fuel industry, puts a lot of money into him, uh, as well as uh, Comcast and uh, Nike. Those are big donors of his. Um, so it's not really people funding him. And that's par for the course. Even the the at least pseudo progressives, the people that brand themselves as progressives in Oregon, take a tremendous amount of corporate money and, and money from sources like the fossil fuel industry. And that's that's unacceptable to us. That's why we're running to be the first people powered state legislator in Oregon. There's no state legislator right now that doesn't take corporate money. And we're going to change that. Once you're in state legislature, what are some of the steps you'll take to get that corporate money out? Realistically, I think it's going to take a ballot measure. Um, so right now, there's a um, we need a constitutional amendment in order to set campaign finance limits. Uh, lucky for the progressive left is that there's already one going on the ballot here in 2020. There's already a measure on the ballot that Oregon voters will get to decide on whether or not to allow um, campaign finance limits at all in the state of Oregon. Um, and then it's up to us to come in and set them. So there's already a centrist plan um, set in motion. Uh, Rep. Dan Rayfield from Corvallis has a bill that sets campaign finance limits uh, at $2,800, I believe. Um, which is mirroring the federal limit. Um, that's fine. It takes us a step closer. You know, it's a lot better than what we have now, where um, you know, a fossil fuel industry regularly drops twenty-five thousand and fifty thousand dollar donations. Um, but it's not. It's not taking us to a uh, a people-powered representative democracy. We're still a corporate oligarchy when we have twenty-eight hundred dollar donations going to little state house races. Um, so what I'm calling for is joining the 22 other states that prohibit corporate campaign contributions entirely, uh, as well as matching the strictest individual limits in the country at $170 for legislative races from Montana and $500 for gubernatorial races from Alaska. But realistically, with how um, corporate dominated our legislature is, that is also going to probably take another ballot measure in 2022 or 2024. But we have such a strong grassroots movement right now that's surging in Oregon. I believe we can achieve that. When you talked about, um, can you hear me? Yeah, I feel like you were listing off the Legion of Doom when you talked about those sponsors. <laughs> you've got Comcast, <laughs> you've got like you've just got all the, the the landlord lobby. You've got all the worst people. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, your housing policy and exactly who is helped by that housing policy in your district? Absolutely. So I'm a um, I'm a board member for Portland Tenants United, which is the largest tenants union here in the city. And I'm a tenant myself. Um, I live in a 300 square foot studio apartment in the poorest neighborhood in my district in the inner east side industrial district here in Portland. Um, and that's that means that housing issues are, are deeply personal to me. This is um, this is not something that's just a game to me that is just some abstract thought experiment. This is policy that affects people's lives and impacts real people and myself included. Um, and that's the perspective that we're going to take with us when we when we're elected is that we're going to center the people impacted, not the uh, realtors, not the landlords, not the development industry, but the people, the people who are impacted. And that's why we're calling for uh, real meaningful rent control. Oregon passed statewide rent control. I'm doing air quotes around rent control right now. Um, it's really rent stabilization. It caps annual rent increases at seven and a half percent plus CPI. 
um, or excuse me, 7% plus CPI, which for uh, this year is 10.5%. Um, um, and that's fine. You know, it's not, you know, it's it's not nothing. We we lobbied and supported that bill. I testified in support of that bill and supported it. Um, but it's not real rent control. I don't know anyone who can afford a 10% increase in their rent. I definitely can't. Um, so I'm proposing uh, lowering that cap to a, um, a cap that's tied to the cost of average uh, worker wage increases. Um, so if our average worker's wage is not increasing. If our paychecks aren't getting bigger, then neither should our landlord's paycheck. Um, also beyond that, lifting the statewide preemption on rent control, because we have a, uh, a state law preempts cities and counties uh, and districts from passing their own stricter rent control measures. And that's something that if it wasn't in place, we already could have had relief for, for tenants in a lot of cities around Oregon. Um, Corvallis, um, Corvallis, the mayor there, Biff Traber, has committed on the record uh, to supporting rent control. The mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon, Mark Gamba, has committed on the record to supporting rent control, um, stronger rent control than we have on the state level, that is. So there could have already been relief delivered to tenants and vulnerable uh, uh, people in our state. Um, but uh, the corporate influence and the landlord lobby influence on the state level reigns supreme here. Uh, we're also calling for um, mandating the right to a lawyer in eviction court, because right now when tenants go to eviction court, um, they're faced with uh, the proposition of going against their landlord who al always has a lawyer and maybe a team of lawyers while they themselves don't have a lawyer. Um, I believe every tenant deserves a lawyer in, in eviction court. Um, also, sorry, go ahead. So no, 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 you can continue. And then also investing in publicly owned, dense, green, affordable housing as part of the Oregon Green New Deal um, because housing policy is also climate policy. Um, and uh, you know, housing is a human right. We can we can solve houselessness by simply uh, putting people in houses. Um, it's not that difficult. This isn't a supply issue. There's 16,000 vacant rental units in Multnomah County, the county that Portland is in, and there's 4,000 houseless people. So we have four vacant rental units for every houseless person that sleeps on the streets in Multnomah County. Um, and uh, it's it's a very simple little uh, a solution. Just give people housing. Um, and it needs to be dense, and it needs to be green, and it needs to be publicly owned. And now, uh, speaking as someone who is trans and uh, is currently having uh, a deal of trouble with the uh, with the current kind of housing system and uh, re regulations regarding landlords and renting. Uh, and you're being trans as well. How, uh, how will these sorts of regulations on housing and on renting benefit the trans community? It'll it'll be huge because um, the trans community is really on the front lines of the housing crisis. One in one in three trans people have been houseless at some point in our lives, including myself. I've been houseless twice in my life. Um, I was, and, I was uh, very nearly, I was very nearly houseless until a, until a, a friend took me in. That's a very common story for trans people and, and trans people can be discriminated against in housing. Um, so in Senate Bill 608, the um, uh, rent stabilization bill that we just passed, um, there's a uh, no for cause eviction clause in there that basically says you need just cause to evict a tenant. Um, unfortunately, they put in a loophole and an exemption for the landlord lobby that was openly negotiated with the landlord lobby, stating that if your landlord serves you three lease violation warnings, then they can evict you for cause. And it needs to be written warnings. But that could mean your landlord comes into your unit and sees that you have too many potted plants on your windowsill, or maybe your boyfriend stayed over too late, um, or you you know, it's just too dirty or messy in your apartment. And that's three lease violation warnings right there. And they can evict you for cause. And that undermines the anti-discrimination laws that we have in Oregon, because there's no federal anti-discrimination law protecting trans people from being evicted from their housing just for being trans or being denied housing just from being trans. Um, I've been denied housing in other states for just for being trans. Um, so it's very common. And there's no federal protection, but we do have that protection in Oregon 
unfortunately, it's undermined by that loophole. So that's something that we want to clear up once we're elected as well. And continuing on to another aspect of the trans experience, uh, you have a lot of experience dealing with the, the U.S. military and being trans and the trans military ban that Trump uh, implemented. So if you could kind of speak to your experiences there and how they're informing your current policy. Well, I think it's um it's important to recognize that the trans military ban is such a high profile issue. Um, it's probably the most high profile trans issue that cis people are regularly exposed to, and I think that's a, a real shame. And that um, it's not it's not the most important issue that trans people are facing in this country. You know, trans people not being able to serve in the military um, doesn't materially damage us nearly as much as not having federal anti-discrimination protections in the workplace or, or in housing. It doesn't uh, hurt trans people nearly as much as the blanket 50 state policy of trans women being housed in men's jails and prison. Um, so going going through you know that that ordeal of, of being uh, a soldier in the army and then being forced out following the Trump administration's trans ban, um, that, was, that was difficult and, and terrible for me, but it also uh, put it in perspective how voiceless we are in this country that um, cis people have a monopoly on framing the the trans narrative around whatever issues are least threatening to cis people. And I think the trans military ban is a very unthreatening issue for cis people to face because it doesn't challenge uh, other power structures beyond cis heteropatriarchy like imperialism. It's still supporting imperialism and the imperialist foreign policy of this country. Um, so that's the that's how that that informs my my view on trans issues. I think anybody who's actually served, you know, always has, uh, you know, tends to have well informed perspectives on things like foreign policy because you've lived it. Perhaps you could speak a little bit to the situation that we're in right now with the U.S. has been continually provoking or trying to provoke a conflict with Iran. And now it appears that perhaps we have one. Uh, in fact, we just saw reports that uh, Iranian missiles were launched against Ain al-Assad base, which houses U.S. troops, like a f literally a, f a few minutes ago. So obviously we're in the middle of a serious crisis now. Um, what can we do to stop having these kinds of crises as, as, as the U.S. military? Or what can we do to wind down some of this just blatant bullying in the international sphere? Uh, I deployed to the Middle East um, when I was uh, in the army. I was an infantry woman in the army. And I, I saw firsthand the devastation and destruction that U.S. foreign policy causes. Um, and at the time, I, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't very uh, radical. I was just kind of a um, a centrist liberal, you know, pretty apolitical. Um, didn't really understand my role in in U.S. Uh, imperialism at the time. Um, but when I was deployed, I, I saw firsthand the suffering that the U.S. was causing among the people there. And I saw firsthand exactly why that was the case. Um, uh, I was in a couple of different countries in the Middle East when I deployed, but um, one of them was in Qatar. I guarded a gate on um, uh, a U.S. Army base in Doha, Qatar, which is the capital city of the country. And uh, they were at the time building stadiums for the World Cup that's about to happen. And they were uh, really heavy into the construction there. And they were using uh, migrant workers from, at the time, India and Pakistan. Now I believe they get their workers mostly from Libya um, after what Obama did to that country. But at the time, it was mostly from Pakistan and India. And these migrant workers would come to the country and they would sign an employment contract because they're coming to look for work, sign an employment contract with a construction company that's usually owned by uh, a U.S. or a British or other European company. 
Um, and they would have their passports revoked as soon as they, they signed the contract. And the company would hold on to their passports um, with the condition they'd give it back after the completion of the contract and allow them to leave the country once their contract is completed. Um, but oftentimes that, that wouldn't be uh, upheld. Their contract wouldn't be upheld. And they would never see their passports again. And they wouldn't get paid the wages they were promised if they got paid at all. Um, so effectively, it was um, an economy built on slavery because um, these migrant workers often weren't paid and they worked in terrible conditions and they weren't allowed to leave. So, you know, that's that's slavery. Um, sounds like slavery to me. Got to tell you. Yep. Yeah. Yep, it sounds a lot like slavery. <laughs> so um, and I, I interacted with these these workers regularly. They um, I was uh, I sat in a guard shack or a guard tower um, and they would come by and they would clean my guard shack um, and they would get bussed into the base because they um maintained the base. They uh, piped out all of our sewage and, and they drove our sewage out on trucks and they cooked our food and they cleaned our base for us. And they maintained all our air conditioning units because it was 125 degrees with 80% humidity in Qatar. And um, and and I, I saw the conditions that they lived and worked in. And I realized that if they wanted to fight back against their oppressors, that I would be the violence that put that down. You know, I wasn't there to directly stop them from escaping. But in a sense, I was I was a slave guard because if they if they wanted to free themselves, then their oppressors was the U.S. military. And if they wanted to free themselves, I would have been the violence that that stopped that. Um, so that's what really radicalized me. And it showed me how imperialism and U.S. foreign policy is a function of capital because that was all about the World Cup. That was all about um, U.S. companies who were building hotels and building stadiums or, or NATO country companies um, to, 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 to import that capital into this uh, global South country and use the, the labor of these slaves to make it all happen. Um, and the profits, they're not saying in Qatar, you know, the workers aren't, 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 aren't enjoying those profits. They're all being exported back to the West. Um, so that's what really exposed me to that. And that's what really um, uh, formed my opinions on U.S. foreign policy. And I think Iran is more the same. You know, we you know, we we know who John Bolton is. He doesn't hide who he is. Uh, we know his influence in the White House. He's been aiming for a war with anyone who he could who, who he could try to try to get one with, whether it be Venezuela or now Iran. He's been he's been angling for a war uh, for months. And it looks like um, he's finally got one. And uh we can see who's going to profit from it. You know, Northrop Grumman's stocks have gone up quite a lot recently. Uh, and you can, you can go and look at the stocks of all the arms producers and you can see, uh, see that some people are already making a lot of money off this. And if it goes to a, a, a real shooting war, uh, and especially if it goes to a, a, a ground war, um, there is going to be a tremendous amount of money made um, by U.S. military industrial complex companies. It's also important to note that that money uh, and a lot of a lot of liberals say, you know, it's a waste of money. You know, we're we're spending a bunch of money on war, but we're not just spending that money. You know, that money is not just going into the void. We're not burning it. We're actually we're transferring that money into the hands of the military industrial complex companies, and that's public money. So it's really an upward transfer wealth scheme because when workers pay their taxes, that money is then being transferred into the the shareholders of these uh, military industrial complex companies. Um, so it's just an upward transfer wealth scheme on the backs of what could be millions of Iranian lives that could be lost. And that's what's really at risk. You know, that's that's what's important to center, not the U.S. soldiers that are going to die on this imperialist crusade. That matters too. Not the money we're going to waste, but the the millions of Iranians who are at risk, uh, innocent people who don't want a war with America, um, who didn't ask uh, to, to wake up into a world this dangerous, but could very well see their lives and their homes destroyed because of endless greed and, and endless uh, hunger for endless profit by U.S. military industrial complex companies. Leia is always very fond of saying that the proper case 
to be made against war can't be made on a spreadsheet and that there needs to be a moral case about the the situation that we're in um i know that when we talk about the military industrial complex it's not just the national issue i mean the 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 military industrial complex is something that exists individually in every single district in the united states there's a base or there's some kind of fixture or manufacturing um, there's some source of jobs in literally every district in america what is something that can be done for you as a state rep to slow down the rush to war locally. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So um, a lot of people tell me when I talk about uh, imperialism that why is this relevant? You're running for the state house. You shouldn't talk about foreign policy, especially like Democratic Democrat Party operatives tell me this is a dumb thing. You shouldn't alienate voters on an issue that you don't need to talk about. And for conventional campaign strategy, that would be correct. But I don't I don't accept that. I believe that foreign policy is relevant for every American, but especially for our elected officials on the state and local level, um, because there are manifestations of the um, military industrial complex right here in our district in Oregon. We have um, uh, Leopold, the um, the optics manufacturer who makes sniper scopes, um, is right here in Beaverton, Oregon. Um, and uh, we also have uh, a lot of research and development for the military industrial complex happening at Oregon State University in Corvallis. Um, and that's that's really where um, state legislators has has power to, to stop this. Um, you know, we can we can pass resolutions. That's been has happened before where cities or states have passed resolutions um, condemning, you know, this certain action or, or this this war that the U.S. has taken up. But that that has no material impact. Um, what we can do is we can uh, we can stop the research and development that's happening at Oregon State University. We can tax Leopold until they, um, you know, we can tax them out of existence if we wanted to or tax them out of the state at the very least. Um, but and also we can we can divest our public employee pension fund. So the public employee pension fund here in Oregon is invested in the military industrial complex to the tunes of millions of dollars. And that's that's money that's directly funding um uh, not just U.S. military aggression, but also other countries' aggression, and and it's also funding the apartheid state of Israel. Um, so there's there's a lot of actions we can take here on the local level that our corporate Democrat establishment simply lack the courage to do. So what's the current status of the anti-war movement in Portland? Like, I feel like my local DSA is more focused on domestic issues. Um, is Are the, the left organizations in your area like quickly responding to this or what, what's kind of happening there? We are. We're, the anti-war movement in Portland is very strong. Um, and it's it's been that way since Vietnam. Um, so we have people who have been uh, in the anti-war movement all the way since Vietnam who are still here and still organizing. And that's um, and we did have a very quick response to this. So um, uh, right after uh, the assassination, uh, the next day we had a rally. We held a rally in downtown Portland. We had an emergency rally, uh, a no war in Iran rally where we turned out um, about 300 people to that rally. And we organized it in just less than 24 hours. The Portland DSA chapter did. Um, and our anti-imperialist working group is one of our uh, most active and working groups in the uh, in the DSA chapter, um, and we had speakers who were um, from Iraq and Iran. We had uh, two speakers who were born in Iraq and one born in Iran, and we had speakers who were veterans uh, of the war in Iraq, um, and we had a a very diverse slate of voices. Um, that came out to very loudly declare that uh, the people of Portland don't consent to this unilateral and reckless action that our president has taken to drag us into a war that the people of, of this country uh, did, didn't ask for. Um, you know, we as workers and as uh, regular everyday working class people in America, we have more in common with working class people in Iran than we do with the billionaires here in America. 
I have more in common with a, a farm worker in Iran than I do with um, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. And our enemies aren't on the other side of the world. Our enemies are right here in this country. For those of us who aren't lucky enough to live uh, where there's such an active organizing movement, what can we do to create a strong movement like what you have there in Portland? Well, there's there's no shortcuts. You just got to get out there and you got to organize. And that's that's hard and that's difficult. And it's um, but there's there's no ifs or buts about it. You can't just manifest this out of thin air. You have to um, you have to go out and you have to build lists, build contact lists. You know, when you every time you host an event, if you host um, if you host a rally, make sure you have sign up sheets there. Get people's phone numbers and their emails, um, and start building up your your contact list to turn people out. Um, if you don't have an org that you can organize under, a banner you can under, organize under, like a DSA chapter or some other org, then then create one. You know, it's it's not. Um, you know, there's a process there for you to create an org. You can create a 501c4 org in your state. You can go through that process, um, and uh, you can have a real um, uh, tangible organization with a bank account that you can organize from. Those are the material things you need, not just a bunch of people getting together um, for a Facebook event. You know, um, a tangible organizations that have lists, have bank accounts, have resources that you can use and mobilize on these actions are built through hard organizing work. I know a guy who worked uh, really good, who worked really hard on building a tangible organization here in Atlanta. Uh, Greg McKelvey was actually the former chair of uh, Atlanta DSA. I know he does a lot of work uh, in Portland, both before and after. He had like the bosses up front kind of messed with his life and he had to go back. Uh, can you talk about working with him and what he's brought to the table in the city? Yeah, I love Greg. He's a real um, staple of the organizing community here in Portland. We're we're good friends. We're we're in a fantasy football league together, actually. Um, How's he doing? Oh, terrible! No, he he lost in the first round of the playoffs. Um, <laughs> I hate to see it. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. He tried, <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, he brings a lot to the table. He's a real staple of the community here. Right now, he's the campaign manager for a mayoral candidate, Sarah Anarone. Um, and uh, he's really taking the fight to the establishment, and we're lucky to have him. Sorry, we we sorry we stole him from Atlanta. I'm sure y'all miss him. Yeah, we we definitely do. Uh, Leia, go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry, I was reading news. Uh, anyways, uh, I saw from your article in Jacobin that you were a member of the of the CPUSA, which kind of has a a checkered reputation in uh, online left circles as being kind of a den of cops or. I mean, I don't mean anything against you, but it just kind of has this reputation as like not really effective and been in decline since the 30s. Like, is that is that reputation accurate or is there has there been sort of a, a post Trump boost like there was for the DSA? Yeah, I, I know that that's the reputation that uh, we have, and it's kind of a meme at this point. But um, it's it's not really true, at least not anymore. I don't know if it was true at one point or not, you know. Uh, but um, it's definitely not a den of cops. I don't think the FBI cares enough about CPUSA. It's such a small org that they would even waste resources <laughs> on it. Um, you know, right now it, at the local level here in Portland, CPUSA is so small that um, there's not a lot of uh, material organizing that uh, the org does. It's a lot of just reading groups and book clubs and stuff. Um, but uh, but we're we're rebuilding the org's rebuilding, and there's a lot of good people in it um, who are are putting in the work because it's it's our party. You know, it's the party of the working class. It's it's the 
Communist Party of the United States and the history that's that's there. Um, I believe it's worth saving and it's worth restoring and it's worth rebuilding. Um, but that's going to be a long process. And um, in the meantime, we have a lot of other orgs like the Democratic Socialists of America, like Socialist Alternative, um, who are doing a lot of great work right now on the material organizing front. And that's not really in conflict with what CPUSA is doing. It's not a competition. Uh, we're all part of the same community with all the same goals. And I'm very glad that we have such a, a, a robust community here on the local level and all around this country. Um, and that's what's going to really take to uh, overcome the the issues and in, in the the what we're faced against here in this country right now with the resurgence of fascism. It's not about um, infighting in the left between what org is is this and that. I think that's a lot of just online memes, you know, that CPUSA is full of cops. But uh, really, we're just we're just leftists. We're just socialists who have the same uh, goals and ambitions as as everyone else that's a socialist and a, and a working class person. Uh, we just want a better world. And, and kind of furthermore, there's been a struggle to define and redefine from Red Scare propaganda what socialism means and what communism means. And you've said that you're outspokenly and devoutly a communist, not a socialist, a communist. So what does communism mean to you? And how does being a communist how will that filter in for your uh, hopeful tenure as a state congresswoman? Well, it's, it's actually not really relevant, I don't think. Um, so I, I am a communist. I think that's semantically accurate. But um, communism is a stateless, classless society um, where uh, the means of production are, are owned by the working class. And I don't. that's something that a lot of people think only exists in theory or maybe not even attainable. Um, I, I think it could be someday, but it's certainly not in our lifetimes. Um, so what we're fighting for right now here in the trenches is really just socialism. And a lot of the, um, and socialism is a mode of production that exists in between capitalism and communism, where the working class collectively owns and democratically controls the mode of production uh, and, and the means of production. That would be means of production are your, your factories, your farms, your a restaurant or a store, anything that produces value under capital is a means of production. And we believe that under socialism, workers should own that because workers produce all value under capital. So workers should uh, should own own that value that's produced exclusively. Um, and that's what we're really fighting for. And our, our platform is a part of that, but um, it's not a communist platform. It's not even really a socialist platform. A lot of the things we're calling for is just social democracy. But um, I think that's okay too, because um, we can't just sit back in our book clubs and our reading groups and say that you know, that's not important to engage in this struggle because it won't change the mode of production. There's um, working class people are, are struggling right now in this country and we have real issues and real needs that need to be addressed. And the capitalist parties and, and the, the centrist wing of the Democratic Party isn't going to be fighting for those issues. Um, so it's incumbent on us, the Democratic Socialists and the Socialists and even the Communists to um, to take up that struggle and show the working class people of this country that we're not just pompous book club nerds that were ready to get down in the trenches and fight for the issues that matter to working people. Or, I mean, in Leia's case, she can be down in the trenches and be a pompous book club nerd. She can do both. Nothing against book clubs at all. Book clubs are great. But, but seriously, I like, I feel like you just spoke to like the heart of what we believe as a podcast. That's uh, it's, it's incredible to uh, honestly, to have someone on who is able to speak to both like the, Marxist materialist perspectives of these things, but also gets it that like we have to just do something today. We can't just wait around. There are things that we can change right now that need changing yeah. on the deadline because like the climate is not improving um, right now. And can you talk a little bit about what the climate is, ha ha ha, in Oregon uh, in terms of the Green New Deal and legislation around that? Because I just 
you know, I, I think a lot of people around the country, not just dumb old me, just assume that the state of Oregon is fully on board with the Green New Deal. And that is actually not the case. Uh, that's actually very much not the case. So um, it's a very interesting dynamic we have here in Oregon with regards to climate policy. Right now, the centrist wing of the Democratic Party is putting forward a uh, corporate market-based solution to the climate crisis. It's a cap-and-trade program that's pretty much this, uh, very similar to California's cap-and-trade program. Um, and that's a market-based solution um, that uh, attempts to um, influence and pull levers of the of the capitalist economy to make it more expensive to pollute and make it more expensive to put carbon into the atmosphere and control carbon emissions that way. Um, and in California, it's proven to be unsuccessful, that it doesn't meaningfully impact carbon emissions in the way that it was sold. And it's being pushed by corporate interest. And it's a bill in Oregon that's being pushed by corporate lobbyists. It was written by corporate lobbyists um, and then introduced in the legislature by their bought and paid for um, representatives, uh, but we can do so much better. We don't. We don't need to just make it expensive to pollute. We need to make it illegal to pollute, and we need to uh, do so while centering justice and equity for workers and frontline communities who are already being impacted by climate change. And that's where the Oregon Green New Deal comes in. The Oregon Green New Deal is a real piece of policy that already exists today. Um, when I'm elected, I don't need to write this bill. It's already out there. I can uh, introduce it on day one. It's a, um, a policy package that's been champion championed by the Oregon Just Transition Alliance, which is a coalition of climate advocacy groups and frontline community groups like 350PDX, um, OPAL, the Portland Democratic Socialists of America, uh, PICUN, um, and uh, it's it's um, a policy that does exactly what I said. It centers workers and frontline communities. It doesn't just make it expensive to pollute. It makes it illegal to pollute. It um, it it takes it raises revenue and invests that revenue back into communities. Invests that revenue into um, uh, public transportation, uh, such as high speed rail that's green, uh, it's accessible, and it's fairless. Um, it invests that money into public housing that's dense and green, um, and democratically controlled and owned by the people. Um, and invest that that money into um, reforestation and um, uh, safe and sustainable um, agriculture and forestry practices. And uh, it's it's a comprehensive piece of policy that meets our climate goals while also centering the people that are affected. Um, and it has a it has a, a moratorium on new fossil fuel infrastructure. That's a huge part of it. Is that um, you know we we need to stop building new fossil fuel infrastructure in 2020. So in Oregon we have a couple big fossil fuel projects that are in construction right now. We have the um, Jordan Cove Liquid Natural Gas Export Terminal and pipeline. So this is a pipeline coming all the way from Canada. It's a multi-state uh, project. Um, to uh, build this pipeline from Canada down through the U.S. and then to an export terminal uh, in Oregon um, down at Coos Bay. And um, it will be used to export um, fracked natural gas to China mostly. And uh, it's 2020. We need to um, be off fossil fuels. And depending on who you ask, 10, 11, maybe maybe 20 years. Um, and uh, we, we can't afford to be building new fossil fuel infrastructure right now. This is a project that um, is built to last 100 years, but we're not going to have a plan to live on in 100 years if we're still exporting fracked gas. Um, we, also, um, we also need to stop building and expanding freeways. Um, so right now we have a I-5, which is um, the largest interstate that goes through the state of Oregon. Um, we have a project to expand I-5 here in Portland and add, a, add another lane to I-5, um, which 
once again, doesn't make sense. It's 2020. Uh, we don't need to uh, be expanding freeways. It doesn't, um, it, you know, induced demand uh, has proven that, in, that widening freeways doesn't actually mitigate traffic and congestion. All it does is add more cars onto the road. Uh, we need to be um, redesigning our cities and our urban environments in a way that centers um, public transportation and biking um, and, uh, uh, you know, not centering cars, um, the center's density and sustainability. And that's not what we're getting from the corporate establishment because it's not profitable for the, the people who write the checks for the corporate establishment. And that's that's relevant in our opponent. Our opponent takes money from the fossil fuel industry, from Portland General Electric, uh, which gets most of its power production from coal, coal-based power plants. Uh, he take, takes money from um, uh, the uh, uh, Pacific source. And uh, uh, the the broad, broad fossil fuel-based industry is donating to all of these so-called progressive Democrats here in Oregon. And uh, that's not that's not acceptable to me. Um, I don't think that you can truly advocate for the working class people that breathe the air and drink the water that's on this planet while uh, taking money from the forces that are destroying this planet. Okay. Um, can we talk a little bit about how much the Green New Deal can do to benefit your local state economy? Um, I feel like when when Democrats get in office, they tend to couch really broad policies um, in ways that are so micro-focused and micro-targeted um, that they don't really create trust between the people that they're trying to drive out to vote because it doesn't affect them materially. So can you talk a little bit about how uh, your policies on the climate will have a material impact and convince more people to go out and vote for you, you know, your next term uh, in the legislature? Absolutely. It would have a huge impact on our economy and especially on workers because the Oregon Green New Deal is a massive project, uh, a massive project with a lot of work to be done to accomplish it. Um, and it's necessary work. You know, there's um, there's not a um, uh, it's not a it's not a problem that we have with unemployment it isn't a problem with not enough work to be done. You know, there's there's no, there's not enough jobs. But that doesn't mean there's not enough work because there's plenty of work to be done. There's plenty of work out there to do plenty of work to, to build the infrastructure needed to transition to a sustainable economy. Um, but uh, uh, we can we just need to get out there and put people to work and with uh, high quality jobs that are union jobs um, that are uh, jobs backed up uh, by by the state, by public by public funding. Um, and that's exactly what the Green New Deal can do. It also includes funding for um, uh, jobs retraining and education funding for fossil fuel uh, industry workers who are impacted by industry shift um, so that we can um, uh have that just transition. You know, that's in the name of the coalition that's backing this policy. A just transition uh, ensures that, that we're not transitioning to this new green economy on the backs of workers. We're transitioning to this new green economy on the backs of the people who put us in this crisis in the first place, the fossil fuel industry and the people who have profited off of it. Those are the people who are going to pay for this transition. And the workers are going to be the people who benefit from it. The workers who um, build the new high-speed rail, the workers who um, build and maintain the new green, dense, affordable housing, um, the workers who to, um, uh, build and install the the solar panels and the and the wind turbines that are going to be required to transition uh, off of a fossil fuel energy based production. Um, those are the workers that are going to benefit from this, uh, and that's going to be felt in every community in the state of Oregon. And this isn't some you know far left radical uh, you know idea that's way out in left field. You know this is something that has real support right now. Like I said, there's that whole coalition of groups, but there's also public officials. So um, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who represents uh, my district. 
um, in the U.S. House of Representatives. He signed on to the uh, National Green New Deal, but he's also endorsed the um, the Oregon Green New Deal. Uh, the mayor of Milwaukee, Mark Gamba, who I mentioned before, has endorsed the Green New Deal. Uh, Portland City Councilors, Portland City Commissioners, Chloe U. Daly and Joanne Hardesty have endorsed the Oregon Green New Deal. This is uh, rapidly becoming a mainstream policy, yet it still doesn't have any support in the state legislature. There's no one in the state legislature that is going to put forward this this bill until until I get elected. Um, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We're, we're going to we're going to take out the fossil fuel industry's representative and Rob Nose, and we're going to replace him with the people's representative because that's who my only constituent is is the working class people of the state of Oregon. How how up how how much of an uphill climb? Hold on a second. <laughs> hmm. How much of an uphill climb is this race? Uh, do you feel confident in your ability to win? And what do you need uh, in order to get over the hump and take that seat? back for the people. Well, it's a massive uphill climb, but we're, we're already a long way up it. Um, so we're going to get outspent 10 to 1. Uh, like I said, our opponent has raised $125,000 so far compared to about $25,000 that we've raised. Um, but we we have a counter to that, and our counter is people power, is going out and knocking every door in the district. There's, um, there's only 35,000 registered Democrats in the district. We can knock all those doors in the district, probably twice. We have the people power to do that. Um, but we we also um, we also need some funding to pay for our staff and pay for our literature when we go out and knock those doors and that that can get expensive um, and we're 100 people powered um, and that means we rely on everyday working class people um, you know like your listeners to fund us um, so if your listeners would like to support us um, we'd really greatly appreciate that we're in an incredibly tight race um, you can go to page2020.com and donate there um, any support is greatly appreciated right now we're projecting to be in a 50 50 race um, we think it's going to come down to less than one percent of a margin at this race so we're really trying to still expand and hire more staff um, and um, that costs money. So I would greatly appreciate if anyone could go to page2020.com and donate what you can there. What day is your primary? May 19th. Okay. And you know, um, it, it's kind of interesting. This is like the internet has made things that used to be local issues and tend to turn them into national issues. I 10 years ago, you could not have imagined that a single house rep or a four or five house reps in D.C., would cause as much uh, of a national profile or move issues in a national way uh, as we've seen like just in the last four years. Uh, I, I do think that in the next five years, you're going to see like people who are running in, in, in districts that are even smaller than congressional seats um, have an increased profile because it's easier for one person to speak to a crowd of people online. Uh, I hope that that can also kind of transform the way that we fund campaigns and that being central to your campaign is pretty important and pretty a big deal. Um, anything else, anything else on your mind? I feel like we've hit so much. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is a very winnable race. We plan on winning it. We're, um, we're out there knocking doors every day. We've, We've got an amazing team. We have over 350 volunteers, and it's going to be um, a really big impact when we win because uh, our our opponent is uh, has near unlimited corporate money. He's the House Majority Whip, the third ranking Democrat in the House, and um, to take him out is going to send a very powerful message, not just here in Oregon but across the region, that um, people power beats corporate money every time, and that real change is happening in this country, and it's being driven by the people. And that that corporations don't own our democracy. The people own our democracy. Uh, Paige Christman, I just have to say, I think when a lot of people sort of envision an ideal situation of a candidate coming forward, like 
you know, just coming straight out of political grassroots organizing from their community. Like this is this is the kind of journey that we would all hope that like more politicians would take. I'm very excited to follow you and see what you do. And I really, really hope you win because like we need you in politics and I'm not even in your state, but this it's important to have strong voices like this that represent the community. So I'm very excited to have spoken with you today. I'm sure everybody else here feels the same and we hope to speak with you again. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on. This was Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we are not safe for wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper. And Buchanan is here too. And our, guest, and our guest was Paige Christman. Paige, once again, thank you so much. Thank you.